0: Welcome to Episode 147 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe & Johnson. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government, uh, and uh, I'm joined today our uh, uh for an interview by Jack Goldsmith, the Harvard Law professor and co-founder of Lawfare and frequent commentator uh, uh, on uh, cybersecurity issues, uh, also a former head of the Office of Legal Counsel. Uh, for the news roundup, uh, we're going to have Michael Vattis uh, formerly with the FBI and the Justice Department, now in our New York office, uh, uh, and Maury Shank uh, uh, in our London office. Uh, Uh, There and many other places, uh, an investor, uh, an advisor on technology in Europe, uh, I, and a director of technology companies, uh, who uh, has been willing to join us for many of these uh, podcasts. Uh, uh, Alan Cohn will appear in a uh, surprise uh, role. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, holding the record for returning to step to practice law more times than any other lawyer, although I have to say I read over the weekend that Jay Johnson, who just left the Department of Homeland Security, to join his New York law firm, uh, was bragging that he had joined his New York law firm after going to government four times. So, um, you know, he's younger than me. He might get to the fifth and tie me, uh, or, God help me, to the sixth. Uh, so, uh, uh I'm, uh, uh, I'm watching you, Secretary Johnson. Uh, why don't we jump right in? Uh, the, uh, The FTC's business model, if the business model is uh, raise the stakes until people have to settle with you over your claim of privacy and security jurisdiction, is looking a little tattered uh, as uh, um, company after company says, you know, we'll go to court after all, and the latest is Uh, D-Link. Michael, can you uh, give us a feel for what D-Link is in court over? Sure. Uh, D-Link makes
1: uh, networking devices, including routers and and IP cameras used uh, for security uh, monitoring of homes or, or offices, things like that. Uh, and the FTC has filed suit in a federal court in California alleging that the uh, D-Link devices were insecure and um, had vulnerabilities that would allow someone to gain unauthorized access. The interesting thing about the case is that the FTC didn't actually allege that the routers or phones had been breached, um, except to, to make a somewhat indirect allusion to press reports saying that uh, that the products have been compromised and used in as uh, part of botnets, um, but didn't allege that there was, you know, any harm to consumer information. I, I see this as basically going a step beyond what they did in the lab MD case where there was a breach, but there wasn't any actual harm to consumers. And, and what's most interesting is that the 11th circuit seems to ca- cast doubt on the FTC's strategy in the lab MD case by basically saying in a preliminary ruling that you have to have some sort of tangible harm uh, or the probability uh, of uh, tangible harm, such as monetary loss or risk to health and safety. Here the FTC has gone even beyond what the 11th Circuit has um, voiced skepticism about and, and brought a, a complaint in federal court where there wasn't any harm
0: at all uh, alleged. So it's well, going to be interesting to see how this plays out. I, my, here's my guess. I mean, I, there, there almost certainly was harm. These, these devices probably were taken over by the, uh, uh, the Mirai uh, botnet worm and used for DDoS attacks. But the attacks were on people who never bought the equipment. Um, And so it's hard to say that you're defending consumers or that this was a deceptive or unfair practice with respect to consumers. It's just bad security practice, and it shows, I suppose, the limitations of trying to uh, pivot from privacy regulation to security regulation. Uh, But I'm, I'm guessing that the... Uh, the FTC will be able to produce victims. They just won't be victims who bought who bought the D-Link uh, routers themselves. But the
1: question is whether they've, uh, or one question is whether they've they've uh, made sufficient allegations to survive a motion to dismiss, um, citing uh, press reports. This is the sole statement about harm. It says that D-Link's products, quote, have been compromised by attackers, or they're there it alludes to press reports that say that they have been compromised by attackers, including by being. Uh, made part of large-scale networks of computers infected by malicious software, common known as botnets. That's a pretty thin allegation of, of harm uh, when it comes to the Iqbal standard. So I think that's, that's going to be a basic question of, of federal uh, civil procedure, whether that uh, satisfies the
0: Iqbal standard for um, so- uh, a complaint. So I had thought that uh, this was um, D-Link going to court. Obviously, it's uh, the FTC, but I assume the FTC would ordinarily not go to court if they thought they could work out a consent decree with D-Link, and and the D-Link basically stiffed them and said, uh, "Sue if you dare."
1: I think that's right. I think I think D-Link uh, probably believes that in, in light of the Eleventh Circuit uh, preliminary decision in LabMD that. That they've got a pretty strong argument uh, against the, the FTC, uh, and the FTC is not backing down. Um, the, the other interesting thing is that the you know the FTC, when it files a complaint, it can choose any district in the country if it's going up against a business that has uh, con- uh, customers nationwide, and they chose California uh, so that they can so any appeal ends up in the Ninth Circuit. Um, so you know they may be looking long term. In the expectation that they're going to get an adverse judgment out of the Eleventh Circuit, and they may want to set up a circuit split. Um, they think the Ninth Circuit may be more uh, favorable to the FTC in the long run.
0: Yeah, that could be. Uh, it would make sense. I mean, I'm, I'm sure they they said, "Well, whatever you do, don't file it in the Eleventh Circuit." Uh, um, I, all right. Uh, well, that was you know that was sort of a parting gift in an odd way from the Obama administration uh, was uh, uh, the working out of a uh, policy that was arrived at under the Obama administration and we had the the handoff uh, in the last week uh, and the Obama administration left us all kinds of souvenirs uh, uh, to remind us why we'll miss them and why we won't I guess Uh, um, the, the I thought there was a, a very nice article in uh, NextGov uh, entitled "Obama's Cyber Legacy." He did almost everything right, and it still turned out wrong, which is a little generous, but not not too uh, generous. Uh, uh, he. Did do far more than anybody else um, in, in his eight years, and it became obvious at the end during the campaign that uh, all everything that had been done was nowhere near enough to restore us to the days when uh, um, our campaigns uh, were more or less private, except for an occasional leak. Uh, um, it, the 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 stuff that came. After that, uh, uh, that that, that was left behind, uh, there's an FCC, Public Safety Bureau, paper that talks. It's a little bit wistful. It says, here's what we were planning to do on security, uh, and these are tools that uh, still can be used. Uh, Of course, it'll be a very different FCC. I don't know, Michael, did you take a look at that paper?
1: Yeah, I I looked at that paper. There was another uh, paper on incident response from DHS. There was a a paper out of the White House on privacy, and they all seem like they're just you know attempts to summarize what was done uh, established for the record, and then they turned out the lights and, and closed the doors behind them as they left um, yeah. uh, that's exactly
0: know, right well listen uh, i've been there i you know i uh, I, I I did something like that uh, uh, at the end of the Bush administration at dhS uh, uh, the uh, the outgoing secretary Chertoff uh, uh, sent a letter to the incoming secretary Napolitano whom he knew and liked and who had similar instincts and he basically said uh, here are five or six things you really ought to worry about that or things that we did that you almost certainly will want to continue uh, and there was a little bit of wishful thinking in that and actually a fair amount of of good advice and i think there's some of that in this there's you know the the privacy paper is the most W- wishful thinking uh is my guess uh but the F- and the d h s incident response thing is uh uh pretty um uh, straightforward uh uh planning for bad things to happen and uh you know it's not it's not fun bedtime a uh, bedside reading but it is uh, uh something you'll be glad to have if uh the balloon goes up right yeah,
1: I think that's right. Um, I think that was probably the one that will, uh, you know, have the most impact on its readers, particularly if they're new to this area. Um, but as to whether ultimately any of these agencies adopts the Obama's position on on privacy or cybersecurity, uh, you know, <laughs> remains to be seen.
0: No, it's Based on I,
1: privacy. It's pretty doubtful.
0: What I tell people about transitions is for the last five years. <clears throat> exactly how everything works has been perfectly clear to everybody the The mechanics the machinery the uh, the, the bases that have to be touched it 's all set in stone and violating those rules is a capital offense uh, and Then, in two days, as though it had been washed in acid everything dissolves and is rebuilt in a completely different fashion. I mean, broadly, there are still departments. uh, They still have interests. But uh, uh, how much attention those interests will get uh, um, outside and inside the uh, organizations is completely transformed. Um, And if you haven't been through it, it is disorienting because – people march on doing what they think is the natural order of things producing memos for people who either don't care or don't matter uh, and um, and all of this work just uh, like lemmings off a cliff just disappears into the sea, uh, as the new structures are, are being developed. And so we have, uh, we, we have, we have the new structure, uh, which seems to involve a lot of tweeting and, um, uh, uh, uh free form performances, uh, from the podium. Uh, uh, but Trump did put out a policy paper on cyber. Uh, it's, I can read the whole thing. Uh, cyber warfare is an emerging battlefield. We must take every measure to safeguard our national security secrets and systems. We will make it a priority to develop defensive and offensive cyber capabilities at our U.S. Cyber Command and recruit the best and brightest Americans to serve in this crucial area. All things that uh, it's hard to argue with. You could, you could carp about the defensive capabilities of of Cyber Command and where they ought to be focused. But, you know, uh, we don't know anything more from reading that than we would have known um, before the inauguration, is my guess.
1: The the same thing could have been said and probably was said every year by somebody in the Obama administration and the Bush administration. Yeah the Clinton administration except that there wasn't a cyber command back then but um yeah it, to me what i drew from that statement was they have no clue what they're doing on cyber and this is uh, you know an easy thing an easy way to mention cyber in a speech without saying anything uh of substance and and you know I, regarding your your comment about transitions i think i think you're right for normal transitions what's especially disorienting about this transition is nobody knows what the new structure is anywhere because this trump campaign wasn't expecting to win they threw out whatever transition plans uh chris christie had put in place which apparently were reportedly rather detailed but they threw that all out the window so there are no personnel there were very few meetings at key agencies with the obama people before they left so man if something happens in the next couple of weeks uh you know it's going to be pretty worrisome to see how this crowd responds since They've done so little preparation and planning.
0: So the acid bath may last a little longer than anyone expected. Uh, yeah, I think uh, yeah. Um, I, I, I do think this is this is a, an administration where we won't actually know um, how it works uh, and really what it stands for until we've been through a couple of crises and. Uh, um, the president has made it clear, you know, when two of his priorities conflict, which ones matter. Um, so it'll be a, uh, uh, a really interesting, uh, I think, uh, six months. Um, so, one last present from the uh, uh, Obama administration. They, in a squeaker this morning, uh, sort of like uh, uh, ri- uh, the Obama administration rising from the grave, uh, uh, the Federal Register published the designation that makes uh, effective the umbrella agreement on trading data uh, between the United States and Europe for law enforcement purposes uh, and allows Privacy Act lawsuits against the United States by some European nationals. The surprise to me, uh, uh, because I hadn't seen the um, uh, umbrella agreement, was that they left out uh, Denmark and the U.K. because Denmark and the U.K. hadn't... Uh, Ratified or agreed to the uh, 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 the umbrella agreement themselves, and therefore the Justice Department refused to allow their nationals to bring these lawsuits uh, uh, we 'll see how that uh, how quickly that is fixed, I gather. Ireland was in the same boat but managed to fix its uh, uh, lack of uh, approval of the agreement uh, before the uh, document went to the Federal Register. Uh, Maury, did you um, take a closer look at that?
1: Yeah, and it's, there's not anything terribly exciting beyond what you said. Um, U.K., I suspect, because of the tense uh, environment around Brexit, may not be ratifying anything UK related. But as we've discussed, these rights under the privacy, uh, the Judicial Redress Act, which in turn enables rights under the Privacy Act of the US are pretty limited. So I don't think there's anybody in the UK who's fretting about this too much. Not quite sure what's up with Denmark, but it's not a terribly big deal.
0: Yeah. Uh, what Denmark has been kind of Kind of a bit of a stone in the shoe for uh, uh, European integration. Recently, they had they did a um, uh, a referendum at one point, uh, and it uh, on uh, maybe it was on the euro. It, it passed, but it's a surprisingly uh, uh, sovereignty-focused jurisdiction.
1: They've been aggressive on law enforcement issues before, with data retention and things. So it's it's hard to yeah. It, The EU is far from cohesive, but the U.S. isn't that cohesive at the moment either. So interesting days.
0: All right. uh, Just two more items. Uh, Speaking of Iran-Iraq war-type situations, uh, uh, there's a conflict between the uh, traditionally very liberal uh, anti-government security research community and The Guardian. Uh, The Guardian wrote an article saying that there was a Backdoor in WhatsApp's implementation of, uh, security for its messaging, uh, and, uh, uh, 60 security, uh, researchers, uh, produced a statement accusing the Guardian of irresponsibility, uh, uh and called on them to withdraw the article and apologize. Uh, really interesting. I mean, the, it, it is true that uh, the Guardian, which, you know, has yet to meet a corporation that they like, uh, uh, was happy to criticize WhatsApp and imply that Facebook was uh, 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 creating a backdoor for law enforcement. It doesn't look like that. It looks as though this is a very limited case where if somebody, if you send a message and it's encrypted to somebody, uh, the uh, uh, message goes out and if the person is offline, it's held and delivered when he comes back online. And sometimes he's offline because he dropped his phone in the bathtub. And when he comes back online, he's got a new phone uh, and uh, uh, therefore a new key to encrypt his messages. And what, what WhatsApp does is it just says, okay, new phone new key, we'll encrypt the, the old messages with the new key and send them. And the theory of the backdoor was, oh gosh, you could, uh, if you were a government, you could take somebody's phone and then hold on to it and then change the key so you could read it and then you could uh, um, uh, get all these encrypted messages, or at least the ones that were sent in the 24, 48, 72 hours uh, uh, prior. Um, and the argument was you should give people who are sending messages a chance to realize that maybe they're sending them to a phone that's been compromised or tampered with or changed, et cetera. Uh, and what the uh, security researchers said is this, this is a question of user interface People are not going to want to get all these messages telling them, oh, my God, do you really want to send this to somebody um, who lost his phone? Um, And so um, there's this bitter fight over a relatively small turf. Uh, I was actually surprised, maybe more than anything, at how nasty and frenetic the uh, security researchers were about this. That I did not understand. But uh, bottom line, uh, they're probably closer to right than the uh, the Guardian is. All right. And now a special uh, feature for Steptoe and Johnson, uh, our first uh, live foreign correspondent report from somewhere other than London. Okay, Alan Cohn, uh, calling from Davos, where you've uh, uh, been uh, rubbing shoulders with the global elite uh, uh, and presumably exchanging condolences with them for the fact that the uh, rest of the world doesn't seem to appreciate the uh, fine, responsible leadership that has made them billionaires. Um, uh, What uh, what are the topics of discussion in Davos that uh, Cyberlaw podcast uh, listeners should care about?
2: Well, it's certainly a, uh, you know, there is certainly a standing on the deck while the band is playing uh, feeling uh, at certain times here. Um, but I think from, from our listeners' perspectives, I think there's a couple of things that are of interest. I mean, there's, a, there's finally a basic realization across uh, all of the industries and all of the governments here that cybersecurity is an issue of, of fundamental importance. It, it was a topic in many conversations. Some about but it took uh, out uh, one of their street, friends, uh, about, you know. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> uh, yes, and and you know you had the you have a sizable Russian delegation here. You have a you have a, a Chinese delegation here, led by the by President Xi Jinping for the first time. Uh, and so it led to it it, it created an environment where uh, you know there's some tension about some of these issues. Um, there's certainly a sense of, of you know that that's on the one hand cybersecurity just is security now um, and uh and on the other hand uh, there's still this conversation about uh you know from an industry perspective we need to be doing things what are those things that we need to be doing uh and of course because it's Davos there's a uh, there's a clear sense that there needs to be some type of global governance for the development of, course. of um, cyber security oh, and technology. The problems
0: change all the time, but the answer never does, Davos. What technology are they going to globally govern uh, uh, for the next few years?
2: Yeah, you know, there's a couple of technologies that the forum has really put front and center and, uh, and dedicated effort and attention. Uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning, uh, is one of them. Uh, the future of computing, uh, including quantum computing, is another. Uh, and there's a serious effort on blockchain technology, not so much as, a, as, a, as from a digital currency perspective, but as an underlying technology for identity and provenance, uh and supply chain management and financial services and authentication of devices. It, all things that could either uh, contribute to a rebuilding of trust Uh, And in technology or a further erosion of that absent that kind of governance that everybody seems to be yearning for. But there's a real question and confusion about how do you how do you create that? What does that governance look like now?
0: Well, Thanks, Alan. Uh, I think you unfortunately have laid out the uh, regulatory agenda for the European Commission for the next 10 years. Uh, um, uh, I really appreciate it. And now let's uh, turn to uh, our interview subject, uh, Jack Goldsmith, uh, who uh, we've talked to before and uh, who always has interesting and provocative things to say. So, Jack, you wrote a uh, a very challenging uh, uh, piece uh, earlier this month called Contrarian Thoughts on Russia and the Presidential Election. Uh, uh, and I, I'd like to explore it, but why don't I give you 30 seconds or a minute just to say what was the theme of that uh, piece that you wrote for Lawfare?
3: Sure. Um, thanks. Um, I tried to, in this piece, put myself in the position of the Russians, which I think is a good idea in uh, trying to figure out international relations and trying to figure out, um, you should always try to figure out how your adversary is thinking. And I simply pointed out that a lot of the things that the United States is complaining about now and is shocked, shocked about, we have been on the, uh, we have been doing to the Russians and a lot of other countries for a very long time, cyber exploitation, information operations, um, intervening in elections and the like. We have very, very aggressive offensive cyber operations, which President Obama was bragging about near the end of his term. Um, The rest of the world sees us, I think it's fair to say, as at least as big a cyber bully as the Russians and the Chinese and probably more. So given that, and given – so that's just a premise. And then the question is, just read the papers the last five or ten or even 20 years it's pretty clear on the um, on the in cybersecurity that we have not been doing a good job. We seem to be going backwards, and we don't seem to be able to raise our cyber defenses for a lot of reasons that are well known to an adequate level. We don't, for a lot of reasons, we don't seem to be able to um, to establish a deterrence policy for reasons that are well known. We can talk about those if you want. So I simply put on the table a third option, which is the third option when you're facing an adversary and you're not doing well against the adversary in international relations. If you can't raise your defenses, if you can't credibly deter, maybe you should try to engage in mutual restraint or cooperation, depending on how you look at it. And so I simply offered that the United States might consider, and I've spoken to lots of people about this, and no one seems to be considering it, what we could put on the table is things we wouldn't do to the Russians and wouldn't do to our adversaries in exchange for some restraint from them on, on all the areas we're getting beaten up on. So that's the basic proposition. And I put on the table, it, it, I guess, most pretty controversially as item number one, the Internet Freedom Initiative, which Putin and the Chinese see. These are the efforts by the State Department and by academics and firms to provide tools to help basically defeat the constraints that they have imposed on their, to prop up their authoritarian state. And it's clearly central part of our foreign policy, and it has been for a while, to spread freedom in those networks. But the question is, can we afford to have policies like that and promote them if we're going to be on the receiving end of analogous operations?
0: that that's very uh, interesting and i think uh, uh, worth diving into but let me start out with uh, uh my usual critique of of your uh, uh, stuff is it, it it feels a little that you got started in this channeling the usual lefty tropes about, oh, America's just no better, no different from the Russians, uh, all this moral relativism that we, we hear. And you know, uh, there's plenty of, uh, Central American, uh, elections that you can point to and say, well, you did it there and therefore you shouldn't complain when it happens to you. How do you, how do you distinguish your analysis from that kind of crap?
3: Yeah. So I'm definitely not in the business of peddling lefty tropes. Um, <laughs> and and I'm definitely not saying, and I said this in the piece, I'm definitely not making a normative judgment that the United States deserves what it got, or we do it to them, and therefore they can do it to us. And I you know, firmly believe, I think obviously, that there's a huge difference between intervening in a foreign nation to disrupt democratic processes, which they did to us, and what we usually do, but frankly not always, which is intervene in a foreign nation to promote democracy and free speech. So my normative preferences are that we be able to take full advantages of all of our you know, many cyber and other capabilities to advance the U.S. agenda and spread freedom, if you like, as widely as possible. But the question is – and I'm not equivocating what we do to them and what they do to us any more than I um, – think, well, God's leave it at that. The question is whether we can afford to maintain this extremely aggressive offensive posture in cyber and related areas, propaganda and the like, and whether we can we, whether we can continue to afford to do that and to meddle in other people's networks to the full degree that we do and, and continue to take what's happening in our networks, because I firmly believe President Obama said this in his press conference at the end of the year, he didn't quite put it this way, but we're probably going to be on the losing end of this overall, precisely because we're so dependent on cyber. Our networks are so open. Uh, we seem to lose out in, in the escalation models, which is why the Obama administration has claimed that it can't really retaliate. or that it, They haven't claimed that, but that's what the stories have said, and it seems like that's, that's what's going on. So the point is not to um, say they're doing to us what we do to them, and therefore we should tone it down. The point is to say, what? How can we get relief from what I see as a huge threat to you know to, to our elections, to our the nature of our democracy? That's that's what that's what's at stake here.
0: So I I, I, I share both your uh, lack of enthusiasm for lefty tropes and your sense that if you want to understand somebody that you have a conflict with, you have to see the world from his or her point of view. You don't have to buy it, but you have to understand how they see the world. um, And it it does seem to me that uh, when Putin was actually up against the ropes in December 2011 and there were Muscovites uh, uh, wall-to-wall in the streets demonstrating for free elections, and uh, to uh, uh, defeat Putin, uh, um, that he must have been very worried about the extent to which the U.S. was supporting all of the electronics that went with that December 11 color revolution.
3: He basically said that. I mean, he didn't quite put it in the terms he just did, but he definitely blamed the Clinton State Department. He said that they were calling the shots, and I think he implied that it had to do with, uh, you know, us helping the protesters and the communication network. So I think that's exactly right.
0: So if that's the case, I mean, what that means is that ironically, uh, uh, it may be that, uh, Hillary Clinton did bring this on herself, uh, that she was the enthusiast for the internet freedom initiatives. Uh, she was the one who probably pushed to have, uh, as much assistance to the color revolution as possible. Uh, and uh, so it's probably not Surprising that for Putin, it was personal and uh, that Trump was a byproduct.
3: I think that that's there's no way for me to know, but I think that's clearly a plausible interpretation. He was she was the um, representative and she gave many speeches and was the representative of the American Internet Freedom Initiative. She um, gave speeches about it. She talked about it on the campaign trail. She was very – her department was, um, as best I can tell, very aggressive in supporting this initiative, and she was the person – and Putin both identified the Internet Freedom Initiative and uh, the episode in 2011. He laid that at the doorstep of Clinton in the State Department.
0: So. I think that's a perfectly fair interpretation of what happened here. So I, I have been thinking...
3: No way, to, no way to know, obviously,
0: but it seems it seems plausible. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I have been thinking a little bit about where the Internet Freedom uh, Initiative comes from, and it obviously comes from the enthusiasts in uh, um, uh, Silicon Valley for uh, having diplomatic and policy consequences for the technology. Uh, It seems to me that one of the things that we haven't really uh, quite grasped is the way in which the 1990s have played into this. Uh, All of the uh, unfortunate talk about uh, seceding from your uh, republics of meat and steel and all the uh, uh, talk about how uh technology was going to effortlessly override authoritarian governments and their effort to control te- um, uh information uh and the 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 notion was if we just let people buy and sell high tech uh, that the uh uh the result would be that we got um a free world more or less Free. That is to say we wouldn't have to make any sacrifices for it. Uh, and, of course, that was very convenient for uh, the companies that were selling uh, uh, high-tech equipment. But I wonder if having bought into that when it didn't quite work out that way, what we saw was with the Internet Freedom Initiative was uh, government putting a thumb on the scale saying – this is supposed to produce freedom automatically and if it doesn't we'll just give it a little nudge uh we'll start sending these tools and paying for these tools and uh uh exporting them to uh, uh to moscow uh and uh with a little help uh we'll achieve the goal that the the internet hippies of the 90s foretold
3: so i think that's basically basically the right story i mean i would say that um Tim Wu and I wrote a book about why called Who Controls the Internet about why that 90s vision was inaccurate at the time and wasn't going to work out. And you just need to look at the subsequent history since then about how successfully states have composed their will geographically, really. Yep.
0: So let, let me come back then to what Go I ahead. think is the hard question. I, cause I, I, I think. Yep if if, if uh, I'm, I'm persuaded by your argument that if we can't defend ourselves and we can't deter attacks uh uh we need to think about negotiating uh, uh and now, uh, as we talk about what really got putin's goat uh, um one of the things we can negotiate about is are we going to keep the Internet Freedom Initiative going and how aggressively, uh, et cetera. Um, one of my questions for you is um, how do we define what it is that the Russians and maybe the Chinese eventually are not going to do uh, because it seems to me – uh we need to have a pretty clear idea what is off the table and what remains on the table, and I'm not sure how to define that in a way that makes it uh, enforceable.
3: Yeah, so I'm not either. Um, I, as I said in that piece, proposing that we consider cooperation or mutual restraint is—I definitely think it's worth considering. And but but saying that is a lot easier said than done. I mean, I've written a lot and we've talked about how difficult it is to, to enforce agreements of mutual restraint in cyberspace. There's, you know, with, with regard to, in this context, I would say generally, because of, for a lot of obvious reasons, attribution is much more of a challenge um, and agreeing on the precise model. So I don't have, so let me just, I'll say a few words in trying to answer the question. I don't have any silver bullets and I was just trying to put the, the idea table to kind of generate conversations like this. So if we were, would sit down, the United States would sit down with its Russian adversaries and ask what are the three or four things that are going on, the greatest intrusion to your sovereignty, and you would like, uh, the, the, the adversary to stop, we might put at the top of the list the type of doxing operations that just went on in the election, um, I'm just talking about cyber exploitations because I think that we haven't really crossed the line into cyber attacks, and that might be that might be a different negotiation. But I think we would want to put at the top of the list the kind of thing that just happened in the election. I think we could define that. This would not be a treaty. This would be the type of understanding that we have with regard to espionage in the Cold War, where we didn't do certain things and they didn't do certain things. Um, and I think what they would put at the top of the list, and this is speculation, but one of the things they would put at the top of the list is our – Sponsorship for and um, basically attempts to circumvent their control over their networks. So that could be that that could be the basis for the beginning of a negotiation. We might want to add other things, but I don't think what we're talking. I think we're talking not about pure cyber exploitation, pure uh, electronic intelligence collection abroad. I think that's the kind of thing that has. I mean, the question is: Are there certain things that each side does with the information? Or there's specific things that each side is doing in the networks to jeopardize the the sovereign's control over what's going on in its borders, and I think that's what the list would look like of the kind of things we could have restraint for. But let me just say, let me underscore that I completely agree with you that um, I completely agree with you that this is not an easy. It's not easy to write.
0: Yeah, I, 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 you know, look, I, I think it's a, it's a, it's an exercise worth trying. But I, as you were talking about, well, it doesn't stop espionage, but it should stop doxing. And that makes sense until you think, so what? The Russians can, can collect all this compromise. They're just not allowed to publish it. Well, that can't work out very well. Uh, well, I think that's,
3: that's ordinary espionage. You don't think we're collecting. Uh, from uh, the equivalent information every day from the Russians and the Chinese, of course we are, and it's not it's not at all unlike the OPM hack, which, as you know, Clapper said was was something he admired and he wished he could do.
0: Well, yeah, but I, I think I, know, I, I think he was, he was we, he was we we, he was he was channeling some lefty tropes himself. Uh, um, no, but, you know, the, the point the point
3: the point was that the point is that that collecting information and, and obviously we do things with the information we collect. You know this better than I. Yep. And it's, it's that there's certain uses in terms of taking information and putting it in the public realm that we find most troublesome. And there's certain activities in their networks, um, which is basically stirring up political troubles for them at home that they find most offensive. And maybe you can cabin those things off and make a deal about it. Listen, I don't I don't want to be terribly optimistic here, but because, because I'm not, I'm really just suggesting that we start thinking about this in another way.
0: Well, so let me suggest that uh, if there was ever an administration that could contemplate this, we have it. Uh, It is an administration that would like to improve relations with the Russians, that feels no obligation to make America's presence, moral presence felt uh, in the lives of non-Americans uh, is prepared to say, what's in my interest, not in the interest of some civil society group in Kazakhstan? Uh, um, and so if there's ever been somebody who might just uh, in a cold eyed way, do the calculus and say, I can take that deal. This might be the one.
3: I agree with that to a certain extent. I agree that it appears, to the extent we can predict what this administration would do, that it would be more interested in a deal like that with Russia. It also appears, if you can take President Trump's campaign statement seriously, like he might be less interested in something like the Internet Freedom Initiative abroad. So I agree that this is an administration that potentially could make a deal like this. The question is, does it have the credibility at home to make the deal? Um, does it have the credibility in the United States with, you know, with the Congress within its own administration? There's so much um, uncertainty about our it, the administration's relationship with Russia that I'm not sure how a deal will be viewed if they made it. Yeah. But also, to be honest, this is the kind of deal that's not going to go through the Senate. It's not going to be made public. It would be a kind of quiet deal, not unlike... Um, even quieter than the cyber IP agreement, which I think was much more involved than than seemed to be on the surface the one with China. So I agree with you that this is an administration that might be interested in a deal like this, and it might be able to pull it off in secret. I don't think it's the kind of thing that Republicans, many Republicans in the Senate are going to be interested in, much less the Democrats. So it would have to be on the quiet, I think.
0: Yeah, but you know, you can imagine uh, a whole set of gradual stepping back uh, uh in which uh, uh a variety of measures are taken to demonstrate uh, trustworthiness, uh, confidence building and the like. Uh, on each side, uh, along with clear warnings about what ought not to be done. Well, yeah, if if that happens, I think that makes you the uh, Herman Kahn of uh, uh, cyberspace. <laughs> <laughs> so thinking, uh, as always, uh, uh, that's Jack Goldsmith thinking the unthinkable uh, 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 from Cambridge, Massachusetts. It's, uh, uh, any last thoughts on this? This is this is a lot of fun.
3: No, I'll just take that. I'll just take that as a compliment and 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 keep. My-
0: <laughs> <laughs> well and i think it, you know it's one of those things where the people who think it's a compliment will think it's a compliment and the people who think it's an insult will think it's an insult and you should probably be glad exactly. to have them on both sides of you uh, uh thank you jack goldsmith uh, for your uh contrarian uh, uh and unthinkable thoughts about cutting a deal with russia over cyber intrusions uh, uh thank you again thank- Thank you, Stuart, very much. I love your show. Uh, thanks. All right. Uh, thanks to Jack Goldsmith. Thanks to Michael Vadas, Alan Cohn, and Maury Schenck. Uh, uh, the Cyberlaw Podcast is open to feedback. We want to hear from you about whether we should be doing these uh, uh, interviews uh, separately, not at all, shorter, longer, et cetera. Uh, we're starting to get feedback, so I do appreciate what we've gotten already. Uh, I, and uh, uh, we hope that you'll send us uh, the, uh, uh, your Uh ideas to Cyberlaw Podcast at com. Uh, this has been episode 147 of the Steptoe Cyberlaw Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, next week we're going to have Corinne Stone, uh, uh, the executive director of the National Security Agency. Uh, if you've got another guest to suggest, uh, send their name in. If they say yes, uh, we will send you one of the coveted Steptoe Cyberlaw podcast mugs uh, complete with logo. And we hope that you'll join us uh, it, uh, next week as we once again provide insight into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.